This show is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Get more at nerdylegion.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome everybody to the seventh episode of Comics in Black and White, and uh, for this week I have a, a new guest, the first time that I have somebody uh, on the podcast that has never listened to a Nerdy Legion podcast, so uh, as, as Zach just said, he's going in blind, he's not used to how we do things here, but Zach has his own podcast, because uh, Zach is also my comic shop owner, and also the biggest Ninja Turtle uh, fan, collector, whatnot that I know. Uh, so I how... this was a show about political satire. Yeah, that's... Uh... I came in ready. <laughs> Speaking of political satire, have you seen the Mike Norton uh, comic strips that he's doing? No. He's doing little Donnie comic strips that are a political satire of uh, of our president. Oh, that sorry, I'm a Ninja Turtles movie. You said a little Donnie, I'm like tiny Donatello. <laughs> no, yeah, d- different Donnie. <laughs> um, you should check those out though. Total tangent there, but they're pretty hilarious. And, uh, he actually, um, he, he releases them where anybody can see them, but that's like part of his Patreon is that, you know, by people patronizing him, he's able to do stuff like that and not just have to be tied down to commercial work. So that's kind of cool. To me, that's a good example of why Patreon is something that's, uh, that's useful. Um, yeah, so we are here to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, the original series. Uh, we're going to be kind of centering this around the IDW uh, Ultimate Collection Volume 1, which is issues 1 through 7, plus the Raphael one-shot. Uh, but then Zach also said, hey, are we going to talk about the Fugitoid comic? And I said, what, what are you talking about? Uh, and this is why I wanted to have Zach on, is as much of an Turtle fan as everybody knows I am, uh, you know way the hell more about Ninja Turtles than I do. Um, so why don't we start with talking about that Fugitoid comic? You had to let me borrow it just so I could read it, because uh, it's not been collected except in a, as you called it, overpriced uh, collection from like eight years ago. Yeah, uh, the one time it got collected was before Mirage got sold in 2009. Their plan was they were going to finally start releasing books in black and white. They were notorious for not ever releasing anything. If you go back, they collected the first 11 a couple of times in color. And those were insanely overpriced before the 2009 collection came out. Those were going between 50 and 100. Now you can get them for like 12 bucks because everything IDW's put everything out. But in 2009, um, Mirage Studios reprinted once again the first 11, plus the four micro series and also the Fugitoid one shot. And what the Fugitoid one shot originally was is it was a pre um, pre Ninja Turtles story that originally was pitched as a backup story to a bunch of different companies and everyone turned it down. So Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman said, screw it, we'll do it ourselves. So the book reads kind of funny because it's not just point A to point B. It's, I think, six different chapters in there. I th- that then I, interconnect with um, the Ninja Turtle story later on. 
Yeah, I think it might have actually been seven. And uh, I just read it for the first time and only gave it one read. Uh, but you had told me that it connects with issue number five of the Ninja Turtles, which it's been forever since I read it. I mean, I, I got this hardcover, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and I've read it once and haven't read it since then. Uh, so I, I couldn't really remember how number five kicked off or anything. But I think that reading it, they did the first five issue or the first five um, chapters of the Fugitoid story were what they had originally done. And then it seems like they did six and seven kind of to transition. Tie it in, into, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but yeah, this technically, the first part of it predates Ninja Turtles, but then they tie it into issue five very directly. It ends with the, the same cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah, I love that too. When I got to uh, number five, which I wasn't quite able to finish rereading this whole book before we did this podcast, but I did get through number five and into number six a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it, it picks right off. Uh, you know, they obviously did it inten- you know, very intentionally and they tied it together pretty well. But it was interesting too because the structure they used in those um, little, you know, backup story chapters uh, was kind of formulaic. And but it was kind of nice reading something with that kind of a rhythm where. You get a little bit of story, then you get a big splash page cliffhanger before the next part of the story. So that was definitely enjoyable. I guess something they were going to try and do, the reason that those splash pages exist, is they were going to try and get like a fold-out comic that turned into a giant poster with all the splash pages, but it was too ambitious for them at the time. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's pretty awesome. It's really cool the different things that, uh, I mean, that you know they anybody could always do with comics, but to see people come up with it and use them in creative ways, uh, that's been kind of the... The basis for me wanting to do this podcast is, is to talk about those people who just had a creative idea, something they wanted to do, and they figured out how to get it done. And to see all the, the just really cool things and some groundbreaking things that different creators were able to do. Uh, so the interesting thing with with Fugitoid is uh, Fugitoid. I mean, what most people know Ninja Turtles from is the cartoon from the what the late '80s, early '90s. Yep, go uh, December '87. Yeah, so uh, it was a Christmas release. Got to get those toys. <laughs> yeah, that's what most people know it from. So a character like Fugitoid, I don't believe he was ever in the original cartoon, was he? He was never in the cartoon, but he did get an action figure release back in the day. Hmm. Like back in that, um, however long that initial run went, I mean, they pumped out toys for everything. A lot of the toys they made up were just entirely fictionalized. Anyway, it was just. Here's a wacky idea, but the rule of thumb was none of the arms and like you can't have two legs look the same and can't have two arms look the same. Mm-hmm. Whatever they could do, they would just make up weird designs and send them off to playmates and then they'd get them back. But some of them were doing ones like Fugitoid that never made it into things like the show. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see. Uh, if you go on Wikipedia, you could actually see they have like a on one of the pages there, you could see it's a, a grid that they do that has all the different characters and where they appear. It'd be cool if they did that with the action figures, too, so you could see what action figures never existed in any comic or cartoon and what characters, you know, never made it to act, whatever, you know, the different ways that they cross over. Um, with... in, in, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no go ahead. So say, in Fugitoid's history, continued a bit on further. He... Um... He disappeared for most of Volume 1 of Ninja Turtles, which went 62 issues. He came back in the 2004 continuation, or 2001 continuation, Volume 4, mixing up numbers there. But he was also in another two-issue series called um, Gizmo and Fugitoid. Gizmo was another Mirage-created character. 
which if you're talking about black and white comics is one of my all-time favorites and one of those that not a lot of people are aware of. It's collected in one graphic novel. It's all beautiful, beautiful stuff created by Mike Dooney, who we're not going to talk about today because he didn't come on board until issue 11 of Ninja Turtles <laughs> in February of 88. Oh, you're just giving us good fodder for future. I can only do that one. That, that's the month I was born. That's the only reason I can pull that one out. It was like, I wonder what book came out when I was born. Oh, this Dooney book. I can't do that for any other book. Nice. I was born less than a year before Ninja Turtles started, apparently, since May 1984 was the first issue. Um, yeah, so I just I just took note of Gizmo, too. I know we talked about that a little bit, but I'll have to uh, get my hands on that so we can talk about that in the future. Yeah, it's it's one collection. It wasn't a ton of stuff, but it's one of the all-time my all-time favorite books. It's kind of like almost low-rent Star Wars. He has a giant like fluffy dog that goes around with him and he's an android wearing a trucker hat and they go on weird space adventures. That's awesome. Yeah. That is definitely going to be a future episode of this. Um, yeah. So talking, talking about Fugitoid and the fact that, I mean, most people that just have a casual knowledge of the Ninja Turtles don't even know who Fugitoid is, even though he... it's a Fugitoid robot. Come on. Yeah. A fugitive and... Android or a Fugitoid, if you will. Since then, so you said that he was in so the, uh, 2001. That was uh, when Mirage got Ninja Turtles back. They, I don't think they ever lost it. I think they licensed it out because okay. they went for 62 issues initially with Volume One. That ended. Then they switched over to a full color series that only went for 13 issues. That no, they did sell it. That's right. I'm not quite sure how it works because they did 13 issues for Volume Two and they put out like these really dark and depressing like one page ads that were just like our last issue is coming it's like an entirely black page with, like this tiny white font like yeah it's, i know it's the 90s but stop being so damn emo guys come on <laughs> and then image comics took it over for 24 issues i don't know if any rights changed hand at the time i think that peter laird and kevin eastman still had the rights but they were just uh licensing it out mm-hmm. because then kevin sold his rights entirely to peter in the late 90s and then 2001 peter laird started a volume four which went for 32 issues and is currently unfinished yeah then he when he made the deal selling it uh to nickelodeon who then they're licensing it to idw he made the deal where he was still able to produce a certain amount of it so he could continue going on with volume yeah. four, right? Technically they can publish up to 18 books a year, but there's a bunch of weird contractual stipulations in there. Mm-hmm. Like Peter Laird has to be directly involved with it. It needs to be in black and white. There's like a certain amount of violence that has to go into it. I'm not sure how that breaks down. If it's like by panel or by page or whatever, but <laughs> so it has to be violent enough to be different. Is that what it is? Yeah. There, I'm, I mean, I'm, I've never looked at this contract. I've never seen the ins and outs. Um, some information made its way to the internet within, I think it was the last year. Mm-hmm. The guys who had done volume three for image wanted to continue it. And they're like, yeah, we're going to do it. And then they hit a legal wall and a bunch of the information made its way out. Interesting. I can't say I'm too sad that the guys from image didn't get their hands back on it because that was a rough series. Uh, I've read it. It's an entire. I didn't read it for years and years. When I read it, I was like, "Oh, this is nowhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be." Some of it was good. Some of it was very nineties. It but... was. It was interesting. It wasn't as bad. Uh, I, I 
I haven't even read all of it, but I, I glanced through the uh, the body count series with Brad. Oh, body Andy. count's awful. Oh my god, that's body terrible. count is terrible. Dude. Yeah, the image series. <laughs> I've never is met just the main series, but yeah, body yeah. count's a terrible, terrible four issue series. Yeah, the image series for anybody who's never checked it out at all. I I didn't even really know much of anything about it until not too long ago, uh, and then I started getting. Uh, issue, I, I have the first, I don't know, handful of them. I don't have that many yet. Uh, but it, within the first issue, Donatello dies and becomes a, a cyborg by being like fused with uh, this, you know, whatever cyborg. Some like fighting. nanotech thing. Yeah, and uh, Raphael gets like half of his face like shot off. off. So he has a, a like a fake eye or something like that, or an eye patch, and he wears a mask through it. This crazy stuff happens. Yeah, he's like, he wears Casey Jones's mask for a while, and then he just gets an eye patch, and later he becomes the Shredder, and <laughs> eventually Leonardo gets his hand bitten off because they wanted to have, like, visual representations for who is who on the page versus just who's carrying what weapon. <laughs> and, boy, they found a way to get there. Yeah, I guess so, man. That's... I, I've only read a little bit of that series so far, but it's definitely a trip, and it's pretty fast-paced moving... Uh, yeah, too. Like and that's a tough one because that's around. never been collected. Yeah, you can only get that in single issue. Yeah, and it's 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 findable, but some of it's not too cheap. And um, it's also it might not be able to be collected because it crosses over a lot with other image characters. So it's not even the IDW could just say like, "Hey, we have the rights, let's reprint this." They have to deal with the whole licensing issue of all of the other image characters that you know show up throughout the entire series. Yeah, it all gets shaky there. Uh, I know that they crossed over with Savage Dragon for, I want to say, like four or so issues back and forth. Uh, Was that also when they did the crossover with Flaming Carrot? I feel like Flaming Carrot preceded it because the art in Flaming Carrot is Yeah, that's more Mirage before, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was very rushed and unrefined. It's not a very good series. Yeah, I tried reading that uh, a while back when, not long after we first started expanding the podcast network, we uh, started doing the Nerdy Legion podcast, which when it first started was, we were just kind of like scratching up topics and getting together whoever wanted to do it. And we did and one you found where, someone who wanted to do Flaming Carrot? Well, no, we, everybody was choosing, <laughs> uh, everybody was choosing, I forget the criteria, but everybody was choosing a series to talk about. Uh, a mini series to talk about. So I, I chose that one because I had it, but I hadn't read it, and I read part of it, and then quickly just leafed through the rest and stopped reading it because it's pretty god awful. I think there's an artist change in the middle, and the end is clearly just like rushed to hit a deadline. It's and unless you know your ins and outs of flaming carrot and Ninja Turtles, it makes no sense. Yeah, it, it pretty much. And I don't. <laughs> um. Yeah, so back, uh, I guess back to, to the beginning of Ninja Turtles here. So we start off with Fugitoid before Ninja Turtles comes about, which is kind of the beginning of this whole thing, but most people don't even know it, which I think just kind of illustrates the point that a lot of people, what they know of Ninja Turtles is a drop in the bucket. And, you know, people that think they know what Ninja Turtles is, they know a, a snapshot of what came a little bit down the road, but it's it, there's a lot of difference in the original Ninja Turtles. I'm looking at the uh, the first cover, the cover for the first issue, and in the word turtles, you get the image uh, in the letters of uh, Leonardo holding up his sword dripping in blood, which is a much more violent image than comes in, you know, in most of the Ninja Turtle stuff 
once the cartoon comes out. Then it gets you know lightened up a lot. The movies never got that violent. Now you jump you know ahead to now with IDW series and the cartoon again and. Well, IDW has a no kill rule. They've never killed once in that series. Yeah, they've definitely kept it a lot uh, a lot lighter. They make sure to slip the word ass and damn in there enough to give it a little bit of edginess because of course those words make things edgy. But uh, yeah, so I mean this is definitely this first issue. They're killing quite a bit. Um. Yes, I mean, I can bring it back even, I'll tie it all together. Yeah. So let's, I think it was 83, uh, Kevin Eastman, a local Maine boy, goes off to Massachusetts and he finds a free publication of a comic magazine called Scat, which is the worst name for any kind of publication ever. <laughs> like, I don't care if it's free or not. It's like, hey, do you want look at this free Scat? Like, no. <laughs> no, thank you. Never. Um, I'll pay you to go away. But he finds this copy of Scat on the bus, which was a free comics publication that Peter Laird was working on at the time. He sent them some samples. He said, hey, you know, I'd like to do some work with you guys. They said, well, we're not really interested. We don't, you know, it doesn't really fit our style. But this other guy, Pete, who works with us, you might get along with him. So the two of them go off. And I I don't need to go into, like, every beat for beat, but, like, retelling of they were messing around and came up with, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles together kind of went back and forth to create the whole thing. And then putting this book together, they borrowed money from Kevin's uncle to be able to publish a little over 3,000 copies with the idea of this being a one-shot. And this first issue is more of a parody than anything else, kind of going off of popular 80s books at the time. A big influence being Frank Miller's run on Daredevil, and New Mutants, uh, Chris Claremont's New Mutants and Teen Titans were really big at the time, so those were kind of two of the ones they were pulling from. But it was really just meant to be a one-off, and then they sold out, and this went back for four more printings. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this first issue is is such a good contained story, and you see so many elements of it that have been so directly used in all the iterations that have come since then, from the movie to the cartoon um, to you know future. Uh, future volumes of the Ninja Turtles. Um, one thing that I've, I've liked about the ongoing volumes of Ninja Turtles and the different cartoons and everything is they all have different origin stories, but with kind of the same threads in it. So it's, it's the same origin, but there's different elements to all of it, so they could do their own thing with it. And that's one thing that they've always been really big on, is allowing different creators to to use this property and kind of tell a story they want to tell. As this first Mirage uh, volume goes on, down the road, Pete and Kevin get less involved with stuff, and a lot of other people start writing more, drawing more. You see a lot of Jim Lawson, um, Michael Dooney, uh, other guys. Uh, it, it, I mean, they, they get some pretty crazy stories down the road, too. Um, but this, this first issue especially is just, it really is so solid and such a good story from start to finish. Yeah, it's not meant to be anything more than a one-off, so there's a ton of really clunky exposition, and they just dive fully into it. The Turtles don't have anything resembling personalities at this point. I mean, they're just four individuals, mm -hmm. four very violent individuals. And we learned that Splinter is a jerk. <laughs> He's like, I've trained you all of your life, and all I want you to do is go murder this one guy, and that is your purpose. <laughs> so Shredder, of course, is the the great nemesis of the Ninja Turtles. They're at odds forever and ever. 
And yet he dies in the first issue of the original Ninja Turtles series. Yeah, so the Shredder stuff, that was all, so much of this is tied into Daredevil. The canister that falls down and mutates them um, was a canister that hit a young boy who was um, dove in front of a blind man crossing the street and a chemical truck dumped a bunch of stuff out. So this is literally directly tied into Daredevil's origin. Mm-hmm. But then you have the Turtles mentor being Splinter, one Daredevil had stick, Daredevil fights the hand, and so on. One of the things that I did forget in rereading this, though, is uh, Rokusaki is the Shredder, but in in this version of the original story, the, the original original story, uh, Splinter is at odds with his older brother and kills him when, when he... Is a uh, is beaten on Splinter's uh, wife, or I don't know if they're if it's his wife yet, but his girl nonetheless. So he kills uh, he kills. Uh, I was trying to find his name. Orokunagi. Orokunagi kills him. They flee to the United States. And his ghost comes back in one of the tales issues much later on. They have to put it to rest, but that's not for like another twenty odd years. <laughs> I'll get to that eventually. I have not read that yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, this uh, this first issue just kind of pounds straight through the story that I think anybody going back to this that wasn't, you know, didn't start with this, it's kind of surprising to see it go straight to the, you know, what you think of as like kind of a, a further down the road kind of thing just immediately. Because like I said, it was, this was just meant to be a one-shot, so... Yeah, they had this kind of mantra going, like, we're not going to be like those other comics that bring the villain back over and over again. Like, we're going to kill him, he's going to be dead. And when they do bring him de- back down the road, he's uh, it's, it's done with uh, black magic and he's full of bugs. <laughs> he's worms. <laughs> One of the things I loved uh, that they did in the new cartoon series is they brought back the, like, the creepy mutant shredders in that one episode. Yep. Which goes back to, the, to that issue when they bring back the shredder. Uh, yeah. So moving on from there, I mean, this this first volume, that's that's one story. Then you have the story of them against the Mousers and Baxter Stockman. And then you have the story with them and the Triceratons. And then yeah, the one, so this first volume there. goes all over the place. They start off with being real street level, and by the end of issue four, they're being like transported into space. Yeah, it's that, one of those things you can see the kind of interest of both creators. Like Kevin was more the kind of blood and guts violent guy, and Pete was more the I like Star Trek guy. <laughs> yeah, and you get definitely get a lot of references to to that when they get up into space. That was one thing that reading this for the first time surprised me, uh, because I had when I got this I had never read any of the original Ninja Turtle comics. Uh, I don't think I got this too long after I even started reading the IDW series. Um, which I've only really been into comics for maybe five or six years. And Ninja Turtles and Valiant was I had been reading like some Batman, some X-Men. And then I went to Coast City Comics down in Portland and they were having a sale. And I said, I want to try something different. So they said, oh, well, there's this new Ninja Turtles comic that's out. It had been out for like, I think, less than a year at that time, maybe a little over a year. Well, yeah, one of the guys who works down there, if you look at his forearm, he has the first issue of Mirage tattooed on him really is that ross yeah yeah ross is cool he's actually been on the uh the valiant podcast with us before oh no kidding yeah um talking about the uh like kind of the it was when he started doing his his like auction house job that he's doing 
uh, now also. Or I'm assuming he's still and I haven't talked to him in a little while. Uh, yeah, he's a cool guy. But yeah, so they got me into that and uh, and Valiant at the same time. And then I they started releasing these, and I picked up the first one. But I was really surprised. Like, I the first issue, Shredder, okay, I know that. The Foot, the Shredder. You know, and then you get the story with Baxter Stockman and uh, and the Mousers. And then all of a sudden, they're thrown up into space pretty quickly with the Triceratons um, that I had never – I didn't know anything about the Triceratons yet at that point. The Baxter one has um, some interesting stuff that I think only another one of those things that isn't well, well known. It's gotten out there a little bit, but um, I just want to start with the first two page or first three pages just for the heck of it. One of the things that they do is these guys, one of their big influences is Frank Miller, but another one of theirs was Jack Kirby. And they do this uh, system that Kirby essentially set up where you open with one splash page. And then you do a two-page spread, and then you get into the story. If you flip through these early books, that's about how half the issues are set up, is that old Kirby style of storytelling. But in issue two, Baxter Stockman is based on um, Kevin's girlfriend's father at the time, at least visually. And April was based on his girlfriend. But I think they did um, his girlfriend, April... Like, Baxter was black at the time, but they switched her for the comic for whatever reason. Mm. I couldn't tell you. There's some later on where they basically draw April as black. It kind of goes back and forth. It's very confusing. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, it was based on his girlfriend, April, and Baxter was based on her father. Yeah, her look changes a lot, too. They they admit in uh, in the notes they have in this that they were not very good at drawing females. It was definitely not their, uh, their strong point. Yeah, I, God, I, I love the Mousers though. They, they've always been something that I loved. One of my they have a great design. Yeah, one of my strongest memories of the the cartoon was when the Mousers, not the Mousers actually, the uh, the other little robots go to the zoo and get Bebop and Rock, or they get the Rhino and the Warthog to make yep. Bebop and Rock steady. That is, I love the the you know mechanical creatures in uh, in the early Ninja Turtles stuff between this and the cartoon. Now, the Mouser story has been redone in basically every iteration except maybe the movies. They're relatively close. That'd be great if they did that in the movies, just, you know, not with uh, Michael Bay. Yeah. They need somebody who can actually make movies that the fans want to see, not just Hollywood. And then issue three, literally nothing happens. It's a car chase. (laughs) And that is the the one magazine-sized issue that I actually own. Yeah, they would cut that down pretty fast, because then they did the Raphael micro-series, which was just... uh, kind of satirize the many uh, mini-series that were coming out at the time, like all the four-issue ones, like, oh yeah, well, we'll do a micro-series. And then they did one for everyone. Yeah, I love those series, though. The I think the Leonardo one is my favorite one, which isn't in this book, but it's in the yeah. next volume. Uh, and that's one that they they pretty much did the same thing when IDW... They did, yeah, that was a nice little touch. They pay a lot of homage to the old things. Yeah. And then now with uh, the um, Ninja Turtle um, universe, the backup story is is also kind of reminiscent of uh, of it. It's a little different. I mean, it's kind of like a, a Leonardo's head trip. And I'm a little bit behind in that, so I don't know where it goes as it keeps on progressing on. But kind of starts out that way of the kind of roving battle where he starts getting his ass kicked. The, the Raphael one, this is the one. I mean, you've seen this story if you've seen the first movie. This is the introduction of Casey Jones. If you saw the 1990 movie, it's pretty much beat for beat the same thing. 
I love it. When I was reading the issue, it's uh, the music that they have when uh, when they're kind of mouthing off back and forth right before Casey whacks him with the uh, the golf club. Little, uh, you know, the, the music they have in the background. I, that was going through my head the whole mm-hmm. time while reading it too. Yeah, that movie doesn't get enough credit for being like the first comic book movie to really be an adaptation of previously published material. Yeah, and that was the most successful independent movie at that yeah, time. For a long, long time after long time, that, yeah. I think it was Pulp Fiction that uh, that unseated that as the, the most successful independent movie. Uh, and, it, go ahead. And after this Raphael issue, like a lot of people don't think about um, marketing until a couple of years later, but this is when they first did their first round of merchandising was this early into the run. It was a role-playing game, and Dark Horse published some pewter figures, I think. Yeah. But there's a role-playing game out there that's done by all these guys, and they have to like make up all of this additional lore that never made it into the books just because they didn't have that big of a world yet. <laughs> but they were always successful enough that they could do it. Yeah, I, I love Casey, too. He's he's a good character. He Especially as the series goes on, and he develops into more depth than just being this thug that's going out and beating on crim- criminals. Um, it's funny to see in the cartoon. I mean, he only appears, I think, twice in the cartoon, and he's basically just a Clint Eastwood knockoff. Yeah, and in this, he's just a guy who watched too many action movies, so he wants to go hit people. All right, and then we get into issue number four, where the Turtles are trying to find Splinter, who yep, uh, was missing disappeared. after. Yeah, the, the Mousers chased him out of his home, and he ended up in dire straits and he actually got rescued by uh, these aliens in the TCRI building, which is what the turtles end up running into him in there. They still haven't quite sorted it out until the end of this book, but then all of a sudden we're in space. They go in the TCRI building. They find Splinter, but very briefly. Mm -hmm. And they're transported into space. I think one of the things that um, be interesting to, we haven't really talked about it is all this art. I mentioned it offhand, but it's all black and white. It's an old kind of style that you can't do anymore. It's called duo shade. Mm-hmm. And what it, they would put the pencils down, they put their initial inks down, but for all of the shading, the way that it was done is you would apply uh, one a chemical, and you can see all of the lines that are going in one direction. And then if they wanted to make it darker, they would put a chemical on the same spot, and that's where all of the lines going the other direction would appear. So all that stuff is just underneath the surface of the paper. It's also an insanely heavy paper. You can't get it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very interesting technique. That was it was a cool thing to read about. Um, that's if anybody hasn't ever seen these IDW collections, they're great because they have annotations at the end of each issue where Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird both talk about you know kind of what stood out. Then they do a page by page kind of breakdown of the key points. Um, they talk about that, the, the duo shading, uh, which is, re- you know, it lends a lot to the style of, of this comic. Um, do you know... I, well, it's I, funny. I'm sorry. No, no, what were you going to say? Um, do you know if there were other comics at saying, this time that were utilizing that? I'm not sure. I know Turtles is really the one that kicked off. I, they weren't the first to do the black and white indie stuff, like... Cerebus beat him to the punch by quite a few years, which was also one of their inspirations. What would the upright talking animal? But I think it came down to 
a cost-effective thing. Like, they would buy one page of Duo Shade, and they would cut it into four different pages and do the art that way. Hmm. The art that we're looking at in these IDW ones, they're oversized. These pages are bigger than the original page they were doing the art on. Not by a lot, but a little bit. Yeah. I have, um... I only have one page in Duo Shade, and it's a little bit smaller than these. One of the other things I like about the annotations, especially as you go deeper into these collections, uh, they have they have six different collections out. Uh, Kevin Eastman, it's like he's going back through them and just being excited about, it. oh yeah, and we we thought of this and we did this, and he just you, you can kind of see his enthusiasm. And Pete, it's just like he's getting more and more like bitter old man as it goes on. I mean, I don't. Pete came back to do these, which is good on him. He doesn't do a ton of shows or anything anymore because he quite frankly doesn't need to. Mm-hmm. When, when he sold the rights to IDW for, I don't know if the number is actually out there or not, but many millions, he doesn't need to do this stuff anymore. Yeah. So him coming out and doing anything at all was nice of him to do. Yeah. But yeah, you could definitely see the different personality types. Like Kevin was much more the extrovert. Pete's much more of an introvert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can definitely see that. I've only seen them together once. Uh, they, It was for the 30th anniversary. Yep, uh, and I wasn't out for that, so yeah, I didn't even see that. Yeah, yeah, they, uh, they well, for, first they had gotten together at uh, Jetpack Comics. Jetpack released four, uh, four uh, special covers for, I, I want to say it was like the issue 33 or something like that. Um, uh, 32. 32, because... okay. Yeah, 32, funny, if you go into Volume 4, 32 comes out before 31, because 31 had been published for free online a few years before. Oh, yeah, I was actually talking about the IDW series. They released... Um, oh, oh, I'm mixing... Yeah, for the 30th anniversary. I forget what issue number it is. It may have actually been in the 20s. Um, but they... Yeah, Jetpack yeah. Comics released a, a few special covers. One of them was actually... The cover was the... That original Ninja Turtle drawing, the first one they did, that was uh, the like kind of really chunky looking turtle holding the nunchucks. Um, yep. But yes, yeah, so they, they uh, Pete and Kevin had done that assigning there the day before, and then they were at uh, at uh, Shellback Artworks down in Wells, which is Steve Levine's comic shop, which unfortunately is no longer uh, open. But they they got together for that for the 30th anniversary, and that was. The only time I've ever met Kevin, but seeing them together is pretty cool to get that opportunity because I don't know if that's an opportunity that'll really come up again. Um, yeah, they had um, uh, falling out way back in the '90s. I mean, they were two guys who just wanted to draw books, and then they became guys who were running a multi-million-dollar corporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you go through these, you get kind of a, a sense of that too. I mean, they kind of talk about what was going on outside of just the issues, and you know they started handing off the the actual production of the comic books, the you know the art and the, the storytelling to other people while they're focusing on the merchandising and the just all the other things involved. Yeah, these I, early ones, what's in, um, was interesting is there isn't a penciler, there isn't an inker. They were literally just passing pages back and forth like across the table. It's, it's pretty awesome too that they they both they they consciously made sure that somebody did something on every page. So they they were both working on everything together. So nothing is just Pete's or just Kevin's. It's all both of them. Yeah, which is very unusual. You, I can't think of another instance where that's the case. Mm. Unless it's like a deadline thing, but this is the 
as far as being a collaborative process, this is the only instance of that I'm aware of. I know you get that with like guys who are like, uh, this book needs to get out, so we're going to bring someone else in, but that doesn't sound as collaborative. Ah, well, so we end up in space. Well, issue five, this is when the size of the book changes, no longer magazine-sized, regular, and the first color cover. Yeah, because before that they had, what, two two color covers, and this is where yep. it comes uh, full color. And the first time you get to see that the turtles are all wearing red bandanas. And the first book that brought on um, their first employee, Steve Levine. So up until then, they were doing everything. Oh, yeah, and that's when he starts doing the lettering. Yeah. It's interesting being able to have met Steve several times myself, and I know you know him better than I do. Uh, but just to hear him talk about uh, you know, the different stuff that he did art-wise, particularly for the merchandising. And he was the one that I heard talk about how they uh, – yeah, the, the stuff that they did coming up with the different characters uh, for the the um, for, for the toys, like you just said, that they like the legs couldn't be the same, the arms couldn't be the same. They had to have a lot of uh, you know nuances to it. I'm sure I'm pulling that from Steve, but yeah, I mean, if he does a lot of shows now, the guy, if you ask him a question, he'll give you a 20 minute answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Steve's a very friendly guy. <laughs> I've been able to meet him a few times, uh, even before Eastman and Laird both signed it at uh, Levine's store down there. I, I'd gone and seen uh, Pete once or twice before that. But yeah, the difference in the characters between him and Kevin, you know, Kevin's more outgoing, but Pete, just the nicest guy. And when you go up to him to sign, it's like you're going up to a legend. And he's just very polite, like, may I sign right here? And it's like, yeah. you can do anything you want to this book. You made it. I'm here for you. Uh, so yeah, so issue number five, they go to uh, different size, so now they're into normal comic size instead of the magazine size. Get a lot more color on the covers. Uh, any other things that stand out about this? I mean, like it, they just go back to that Kirby storytelling. You get your splash page, open it up, double page spread after that. And yeah. what's funny about, um, I think it's this issue, I'd have to, it's either five or six, I'd have to flip through. And I'll just, uh, let's say that it's six. So I'm skipping ahead. I was going to say there is another comic book that came out uh, called Grimjack that has a small story that takes place like in between a couple of pages in here where they're at a bar that expands into this whole other little mini story. (laughs) That's awesome. Like these books didn't come out. If you just go through and read like everything, like, 1 to 62, and you go read all the other side series. There's so much out there that like happens even before issue 1 and just gets squeezed in the middle of other things. That's insane. The t- if you just want to read it regular, that's fine. But boy, if you want to try and piece together the timeline, it is a mess. Yeah, that's one of the things that gets lost when you're going back and trying to read something that's come out so long ago, too. Is It's just impossible to know all the different things that kind of connect into it as it's going. Uh, that's why, you know, it, especially something like this, that there's no source out there that really gets into the nitty gritty of everything. Uh, being able to talk to somebody who was actually, you know, reading it as it was coming out or something like that is always is always a nice thing to do. Um, the last episode of this podcast, I we did it on uh, Love and Rockets. And I was talking with a guy who was reading Love and Rockets uh, from like right after it started coming out, like it had been out for a couple issues. He was in college and he discovered it by, you know, some 
college students sitting around a table all reading this same comic book at lunchtime or something like that. And uh, he that that's how he kind of picked up on it. But being able to get the context of what it was like at the time gives it lends a lot to you know why things are like they are, and you just you get so many more details from stuff like that. Issue 5 also introduces us to the Triceratons, which is Peter Laird's favorite dinosaur, so he had an alien race based on the Triceratops. Oh, that's great. Now, I just finished watching the most recent uh, DVD release of the new cartoon, and it's been very Triceraton-heavy in this uh, season. I had with Michael Dorn voicing a Triceraton. I love it. <laughs> Getting Worf in there. Yeah, oh, my wife is binging on Star Trek too, so I'm hearing his voice plenty lately. Oh yeah, he, you'll find him in one or two episodes. <laughs> All right, so we get yeah. the Triceratons. Uh, they are capturing the Fugitoid, who the Ninja Turtles just helped get away from uh, from the Some... other side of this warring faction. Just like resistance fighters or something. I forget the exact name. Yes. Yeah, I had his name in my head, and then it just completely slipped away. Uh, the the general that uh, wants the fugitoid's uh... brain. Yeah, pretty much. Because he, he built a transmat device, and that's going to make it so they can just bomb the other side without trying. Exactly, yeah. So everybody's after this transmat device. Uh, the fugitoid is Dr. Honeycutt, who... Uh, is working on this thing for the military, so the military will fund him doing the things he really wants to do. Uh, and he gets his mind put into the robot. Uh, on accident. Like, there's an electrical storm, and it's, they combine together. Yep, yeah. Because They're like, course, haha, he doesn't have rights anymore, because robots don't have rights. <laughs> so I can just make him do what I want. Uh, so he's he's trying to get away from that guy. He gets captured by the Triceratons, the Ninja Turtles don't want to lose him because he's their only means to get back to their home world. So they're trying to chase him down from the Triceratons. They end up uh, aboard the Triceraton ship that flees into space. And one of my favorite panels in this book is the last one where they have no oxygen and they're starting to suffocate and float into, you know, they, there's no gravity now, so they're just floating around in the ship. But. Thank God they're really zen, because that fixes everything. Yep. Beginning of the next issue, they're just meditating. Such a load of crap. <laughs> Makes no damn sense. If we slow our breathing and heart rate, we'll be fine in the vacuum of space. <laughs> I loved it, though. They're hilarious. The Triceratons come and find them because they blasted a hole uh, to get into where they're at. They're just sitting there meditating, cross-legged, hands uh, hands over their hearts, folded position. What are they? Are they dead? And then one of the Triceratons walks up and like, grabs one of them by the face. <laughs> so now they're captured by the Triceratons. The Fugitoid doesn't want them to get killed. So April's he... wondering where the hell they are. Yeah. And they're used as a bargaining chip in a gladiatorial match in, to get the Fugitoid to cooperate. Like, you mentioned the new cartoon. They don't do, or at least for the first couple of years, they didn't do a ton, but one of the smaller references that they made is when they go off into space and other dimensions, they have these oxygen converters that are the exact same ones out of this issue. Yeah, that's right, they are. 
I love that. All the little details that they, they pull from all the different iterations of, uh, of Ninja Turtles has been great. I'm just waiting for them to shoot half a raft's face off. Yeah. Pull some uh, some image in there. So, and then at the end of this issue, they uh, they get zapped back to the TCR. Yeah, it's a fairly um, action-heavy issue. There's blood everywhere. They've been off drinking beer in bars. Donatello's snapping his bow staff and stabbing a guy in the kidney, being like, For honor! <laughs> much yeah. more violent turtles than we're used to these days yeah I mean, if this is one of those things if it came out now it probably wouldn't work it's just so it's so cheesy and heavy-handed but i love it it's so 80s i love old 80s comics old it's not that old i guess that's okay we'll make all of uh all of our older friends feel old saying that the 80s are old yeah. Yeah, so we're getting to the end of this one. They end up back at the TCRA building. Uh looks like the, the local military is wanting to get involved in this. They get reunited yeah. with Splinter. Yeah, everyone gets transported back. Like they escape the arena, the Fugitoid transports everyone back to Earth, including the Triceratons and the people we haven't talked about, the Utroms. Who are kind of going back to the original cartoon were kind of the basis for Krang, except not evil yeah that's one thing i was actually trying to remember when i was reading this again because it'd been a while uh because in the the newer cartoon the utroms are they're just called the krang but the krang is like a race and not uh, an individual whereas in the the current comic book krang is krang and the utroms are the race and so yeah, originally there was just the Utrom, so they were relatively benevolent. Like, when they first show up, you think, like, are they evil? Look at these aliens. But they're just scientists who are trying to get home, essentially. Mm-hmm. Brains okay. and robot bodies. Yeah, they're they are fairly creepy when you see a brain uh, ripping out of somebody's stomach, essentially. <laughs> and they'll come back in a huge way in Volume 4. One of the big things they do is the Utroms uh, return to Earth, and they come out publicly. They're like, hey... Alien life exists. We all want to come to Earth. Let's all get along. I haven't read any Volume Four yet. I need to. I have a handful of those. I need to start reading that too. That's another one that is yet to be collected. But in some of them, boy, they start getting pricey because the print run went real low. Yeah, I was lucky enough. You were talking about the thirty-second issue, uh, which that was actually the first time that I went down to Shellback and Pete was there. Was when they had that for sale. Uh, and I got a copy of that, and I got a print that they did also that was pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, I think the way it went is the first, you know, let's say, 22-ish are relatively accessible, not that expensive. But then after that, the print run started getting real low. Mm-hmm. And then starting with 28, it was so low that Diamond wasn't putting out the book anymore, so they started selling it directly through the website. Knocked it down to a 1,000 print run, selling for 10 bucks a pop. And I mean, even I remember when 28, or was it, yeah, tw- no, I'm sorry, 29. When 29 came out, that was the first one. I was a little indignant. I'm like, 10 bucks? <laughs> and I ended up waiting like a year when 30 came out. I'm like, I guess this is the way it is now. <laughs> because they took like 18 months in between issues there. And I bought 29 and 30 for 10 bucks a pop. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. They're going for over 700 now on eBay a piece. Oh, good grief. I guess I won't be collecting those too much. 
um, I think Pete might have put him out on his blog for free, but yeah, twenty nine and thirty go. That only happened recently, but you know they sold for over seven hundred a pop. Wow, that's crazy. You know, if my house ever burns down, I'm like, get the box. <laughs> it has the pricey things. Seriously. Not for collecting, to sell and to rebuild. Yeah, you know, that's yeah, one I, thing I was uh, I was talking with uh on the last uh Valiant Central podcast I did with Martin, we were talking a little about a little bit about collecting. Um and with so uh Exo Manowar is relaunching and the first issue they have a one in five hundred incentive. That is, it's one per shop, but a shop has to order 500 copies of the comic to be able to get this. And exactly. the cover is a brushed metal cover. Uh, so it's... it's As a shop expensive. owner, it's insane. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a small shop... I... <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you... if you Like, say I wanted that, the only way you could possibly get it is if I paid enough for it to cover you buying 500 copies of the comic. And that would you pay for, for 450 and I'm going to have a lot of leftovers. Exactly. Uh, so it's it's pretty crazy, but we we're talking about you know the what did we think it was actually worth and kind of where value comes in with comics, and it's a mixture of supply and demand and a mixture of uh, you know like the desirability of it. So something like that, I would I mean that I think what we what we've kind of seen it going for is you know shops selling it for anywhere between like one to two thousand dollars, kind of depending on how much they can sell the rest of what they would get. Uh, and there's like no way in hell I'd spend a thousand dollars on that comic, no matter how much I loved Exo Manowar, because it's accessible for four bucks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you don't need it to read it. Uh, the odds of that going up in value are less likely than the odds of it going down in value. But yeah. an, an integral comic, if I spent a thousand dollars on number one, first of all, that probably wouldn't even be a very high grade copy of number. No, that that would be like a two or a three. That'd be real low, but yeah. hey, <laughs> that thing is go- that um goes for about three grand. And there's a bunch of fakes out there if yeah. you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah, so I guess if you wanted to get one, even if you got a lower grade one, getting a CGC copy would be worth it just to have have been verified, right? I wouldn't even want to do a CGC version of it just because I want to. I would want to be able to actually look inside the book to know that it's not fake. Mm-hmm. So you see so many copies of number one on eBay. They're like white pages. I'm like, cool, fake. This thing was printed on newsprint. It wasn't white pages day one. <laughs> it's a good but, you know, time. yes, I mean, I would never buy a CGC of number one just because it, there are so many fakes out there. I would want to be able to actually verify it. Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. Um, just especially with that one. I mean, there's a ton, like there's, People will bleach out things that say, like, what printing it is in there and whatnot. There are ways to know what you're getting, but there are a ton of fakes in number one out there. Probably more fakes than there are actual copies. Yeah. Interesting. Good to know. Interesting. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so the the point, though, is that, you know, with, with comic value, if, you know, if I was going to spend that much money on a comic book, something like Ninja Turtles number one, it's never going down in value. Like, that's only going to go one way. Over time, it's going to keep on climbing in value. So it's... You know, if if I got it, I wouldn't be getting it for an investment. I would be getting it for the fact that I'm passionate about the yeah. turtles. But the only way I could re- rationally do it is knowing that it's an investment that's not going anywhere. So you know, like you said, if something happened and I had to sell my comics to, uh, you know, if your house burned down and you had to rebuild it, 
it would actually have its value, whereas, you know... Oh, God, I would never rebuild my collection and be like, screw it, buy the graphic novels. That took too long to do. <laughs> yeah. I I have another friend that uh, back in the day had the whole, whole Valiant collection, the VH1 90s Valiant collection, and uh, he actually got robbed and got his whole comic collection stolen. And uh, so he's he's an avid collector of the new stuff, but he just said, I'm never going to go back and rebuild that because I built it once, and, you know, it's... You just don't want to build it again. You put all that work in, you know, even when that's, it ends in an unfortunate way like that. That's even fun. Like 29 and 30, like they didn't sell, even though it was only a thousand print run, they didn't sell fast. I know because I didn't buy them immediately and there was still plenty left when I bought mine. Mm-hmm. But they've just, they've been, they're so scarce now. Yeah. And I have no intention of, it's like, oh, one more, like, oh, they're worth like 700 apiece. I have no intention of selling them. Yeah, that's a true test, too, of if it's something that you really, really want to own uh, or just something that's cool. But... <laughs> On the other hand, I would never, ever buy them for 700 apiece. <laughs> I bought them for 10 bucks, and I felt like that was pretty steep. Yeah. <sighs> well, so that brings us about to the end of this book. Uh, they go back to Earth. We touched on the Utram some. Uh, now, you mentioned wanting to talk about issue number eight, which is actually the first issue of the next book. And uh, I think that one would be worth touching on because it involves Cerebus, which we did uh, an episode of this podcast about the first volume of Cerebus. So bring yeah, it back think, to the podcast. I actually think I'm going to, on one of my shows, go into this one a little bit in depth because it's such a weird story. There, So issue number eight of Ninja Turtles, like I said, Cerebus was one of their main influences. And Kevin Eastman, Peter Laird, you know, really liked Dave Sim, liked what he did. So the crossover book was Cerebus. When they were talking about reprinting the comics, they weren't sure how the rights were going to go about. And if you go online, you can actually see this weird kind of in-print feud. You can see, like, Peter Laird writing some stuff in letters pages and then Dave Sim writing things in his own letters pages about, like, rights. And Peter Laird's not sure if Dave would allow it. He's like, yeah, it's fine. And Pete's like, well, I don't know. And there's this whole weird back and forth. (laughs) So they ended up creating this whole other comic that was supposed to take the place of issue number eight that would still introduce the same characters and all the same elements and which uh, at the time were like uh, Renette and Savanti Romero who come back in a big way later on so that you know you can't not have those characters introduced so they had a way to introduce them and take the place of that book but then ultimately Dave Sim said it was fine to reprint um, number eight with Cerebus in it, so it almost disappeared. This full completed issue. It ended up being printed in a graphic novel down in Mexico in Spanish, obviously, and that was the only way you could get it for years and years and years. And then later on, from Spanish, it got translated into Russian. It was reprinted into Russian. And I think the Mexican printing happened in 2006. I don't remember offhand when the Russian one happened. So a book that was in English, meant to replace number eight, got printed in a graphic novel in Mexico and translated. A book that had been translated from English to Spanish was translated to Spanish back into Russian. And then a Russian fan who does all of the printing of Ninja Turtles books over there had the book translated back into English because the original script had been lost. And he printed a hundred copies over there with one version and then reprint, um, 
and called it Tales of the TMNT number 71, a series that ended in 2010 that it went up to 70 issues. <laughs> and <true>. um, <laughs> Tales, at the, all the Tales they'd have, what they referred to as like a front piece that was art usually done by someone different than the main book artist that would just be like, a, oh, these crazy things happened, blah, 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 let me tell you a story, is how every Tales issue would start. So they did that, they did it in English, and then within the last year, um, this guy's in contact with Jim Lawson a lot, like Lawson still does like all the covers for their collections over there, mm-hmm. and Lawson ended up redoing the front piece, and they did some more edits to try and tie it in. So now this uh, Mirage book, not published by Mirage, but entirely done by Mirage people, is referred to as Tales number 71, and they changed like one line of dialogue to make it so it fits within the continuity, so it's not a replacement, but acts as a supplement. Mm-hmm. And it's insanely rare, but you can find it for free online. The guy who over in Russia was just like, here you go, guys, if you want to read it. <laughs> no harm, no foul. Like I know that how insanely rare this book is. That is a crazy story. You kind of gave me an inkling of that before I was done yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. So a book created in English, essentially out of spite, shows up in Mexico, translated into Russian, translated back into English, and you could only get it by ordering it from Russia. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, and only about two hundred English copies exist. Wow, jeez. On that note, my son decides that it's uh, it's about time for us to wrap up this podcast. Uh, so everybody listening, uh, if you want to hear more about Issue 8 of Ninja Turtles, at some point I'm sure Zach and I will get back together to continue this conversation, uh, carrying on to the next volume. Uh, Zach, you want to tell people a little bit about where they can find you on Twitter, your podcast, uh, your I'm show? so uh, if you want to find me, you can do it over at editorsnotecomics.com. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. The show is also over on YouTube. I do a weekly news-slash-topical show called the Editor's Note Comics Podcast, available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. I've also recently started doing a second weekly show called the Buffy Back Issue Bin. We are going through all of the Buffy and Angel comics that are canon chronologically. That releases on Tuesdays. If you want to get that show a week early, head over to Patreon for Editor's Note Comics. If you throw buck my way the buffy back issue been is released a week early and my own show is released a day early with that dollar donation just because i have to literally record them and cut them the next day you can also find me down at my physical store at 210 water street in hollowell maine you were good at that you can find me on twitter at who's paul the podcast is on twitter at cbw podcast uh and uh until next time uh, we, we don't know what we're going to do for the next episode uh, still working on who I'm going to do the next one with uh, kind of ran out of the pre-planned stuff uh, but in, until next time follow us on Twitter and that way uh, you can find out give suggestions and uh, we will see you next time that was pathetic Ooh. nerdy legion
Sure as hell ain't going to Texas, but I had tacos.